This is Pastor James Guyo, and welcome to Berean Sovereign Grace Church in Westerville, Ohio. We are a Sovereign Grace teaching ministry, and you can visit our website, www.salvationinchristalone.com, to hear more of our messages, and also go to soundcloud.com and search for James Guyo. My last name is spelled G-U-Y-O, or you can search Berean Sovereign, just Berean Sovereign, and you will see our messages there also. May the Lord bless your hearing, and may he serve you for his sake, for Christ's sake, and for the sake of his gospel. And now to our gospel teaching. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your holy throne this morning, Lord, to worship you, for you are worthy of all glory and honor and praise and blessing, even our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, the one who came to remove our sin, who came as our curse and sin bearer, who removed the curse of the law from us by dying on the cross. We thank you, Lord, for his finished work of salvation. We thank you, Lord, for the victory of the cross, the victory of Christ even over the grave by his resurrection. For in his death and resurrection, we also died and resurrected. For in his justification and vindication, we also were justified and vindicated. So, Lord, we just are thankful thankful to you for this wonderful gospel of grace. And we are thankful to you for sending us the Holy Spirit that you may bear the testimony of Christ in us and to us that this indeed is the only way of salvation and the way of hope for those who are born blind, those who are born in this wilderness. And Lord, now we ask for your blessing upon our teaching as we go through the book of John, especially now in John chapter 9 where we're going to learn about the man who was born blind and the theology and teaching that is in it. Lord, may you give us understanding of what these things are, that we may know them and glory in them. We pray and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 9, John chapter 9, John chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. Now, as Jesus passed by, He saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Our sermon title is going to be Blind from Birth and the Gospel or the Jesus of the Blind from Birth. The Jesus of the Blind from Birth. And our third title is going to be That the works of God should be revealed. That the works of God should be revealed. Of Jesus, 
John the Apostle by the Holy Spirit has said in John chapter 1 verses 4 to 10, In him was life, and the life was the light of man, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. This Logos, this word of God, by whom and through whom all things were made, has come to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This Logos, this word of God, this Lamb is the light of the world. The light, the force, P-H-O-S, the light that cannot be extinguished. Unlike John the Baptist, who was just a burning candle, some kerosene lamp, in someone's hand, Jesus' light cannot be extinguished. John's light was extinguished by decapitation of his head by Herod. John's light was a temporary light. It was a light that could be extinguished. But Jesus' light cannot be overcome. It is light that is intrinsic to his being, intrinsic to his nature, to his God nature. It is not a flashlight with triple A batteries. This is not light from lithium ion batteries. This is the life that is the light of man. He has come to the world, to this wilderness of darkness dwellers, to recover his own from their darkness, that they may recognize him. But the darkness tries to subdue the light to put it out like a child's cake candle. But the darkness could not overcome it. It could not subdue it. And in John 9, John the Apostle masterfully and beautifully demonstrates this struggle between the light and darkness. In the introduction in John chapter 1, we are told that the light came, but darkness did not overcome it, which means darkness was actively trying to overcome the light. So in John 9, the Lord preaches the gospel of free and sovereign grace to us through this man. So we have a lot of theology to unpack just from these few verses. Actually, we only be working on verses 1 to 4. And we will have to revisit the same verses again next week, the Lord willing. We have much to talk about blindness, the gospel, generational cases, suffering, and God's sovereignty, and his works of glory. So that is a mouthful there. There's a mouthful of theology that comes from these opening verses. And so back to our text. 
we are told by John that this man was born blind. Not blind like, but me as the blind beggar who seemed to have lost his sight sometime later in his life. We are told by Luke that when Jesus had called Bartimaeus, the blind beggar, when Jesus called him to come to Jesus, Jesus said this to him in Luke 18, 41 to 43. What do you want me to do for you? That's Jesus asking blind Bartimaeus. And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. So blind Bartimaeus regained his sight. He regained his sight. But this man in John 9 was born blind from his mother's womb. He had no sight to regain. He had never seen anything in his lifetime and had no mental pictures of anything that had been stored in his mind unlike blind Bartimaeus. They did not have schools for the blind in his time or technology to help him to read. For this man, there was not much difference between the darkness that he experienced in his mother's womb to the darkness that he saw outside. It was all darkness, whether he closed or opened his eyes. The only sense of light that he had was the light that came from the leading of his parents. His parents leading him by their hands. That's the only sense of light. Because light is for leading. It's supposed to be showing you how you are, how you are supposed to go around different places. And so the hand leading by his parents is what he took for his light. He could feel the heat of the sun, but could never see the sun, could never see the light of the sun because he had no eyes to see the sun. He was a man conceived in darkness, in the darkness of his mother's womb, and was born in darkness into the darkness of the wilderness of this world. He had somewhat gotten to be comfortable in his unchanging darkness, for that is all the life he knew like all men born in sin. For him, there was not much, if any, difference between day and night. No difference between righteousness and unrighteousness for those spiritually blind. But listen to this. Blindness did not just take away from him his ability to see things in nature and to appreciate beauty. His blindness subjected him to the life of those who are blind. Begging is almost always the default occupation of those who are born blind, especially in this culture and in this time. Blind but mirrors in Jericho was a blind man who every day was seated by the roadside begging. For blind but mirrors, Jericho was a well-to-do city. 
and he had a better chance being there begging for his daily living. So this man, this blind man in John 9, probably from the time that he was a teenager, had been living the life of begging somewhere in Jerusalem. And people knew him as a permanent fixture there. And probably the parents would bring him in at the beginning of the day and then come back and get him, if at all. And that is why there was much talk about how he got healed. Everybody knew about him. Is this not the man who was blind? How is it that he can see? But not only that, because of being blind, this man was also unclean. He did not shower. He was an unclean man, and that means he was unwanted and he was despised. And I remember growing up in Zimbabwe, there were always blind beggars all around town with their little children. Their little children could see. You could see them walking around with their four, five-year-old children, and they were the ones who were leading them around. They would be sleeping on the streets, and they would be begging and moving from one place to another by the hand-leading of their little children. A very difficult and sorry existence. But blind beggars, if you go anywhere in the world, blind beggars, almost without exception, are to be found on the streets. And due to limited mobility, by reason of their blindness, they don't really go anywhere. So you almost have to go and you know that there's a blind man who sits by this corner of the street. Some like blind but mirrors were loud and persistent in their cause because they could not properly gauge distance since they never had any sight. Eyes and ears have to coordinate to gauge distance and adjust your voice accordingly. If I can't see where Brother Robert is, it's very difficult for me to make that judgment of how loud I should be. So invariably, they are loud. And if they were begging on the street, they probably were always singing to attract people's attention as far as their voice could take them because they don't know where people are. Some people would have compassion on them, but others would get annoyed by them and sometimes would shout and abuse them like they were doing with blind Bartimaeus when he heard that Jesus was passing through town. Luke 18, 39 again. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. <laughs> they were trying to shut him up. But he kept crying out. He was crying out. He was making a lot of noise. Be quiet, they said. Blind beggars were blight and shame to their family. They were blight not because they were blind, but because of bad theology. Blindness or any such sickness was always associated with some bad omen or something bad or wrong that the parents had done. Some sin that the parents had done. So blindness brought a reproach to both the parents 
and the blind child, and I'm sure some parents resorted to killing their children, their blind children, just so as to remove the burden from them. Some were looked upon as witches or something negative like that. And so as Jesus was passing through in Jerusalem, John records for us and says in John 9, 1 and 2, now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him saying, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Now, as I was reading this, some people were commenting on these verses and they were saying they just don't know how the disciples knew about the man being born blind. And if it was just one person, I would have said, okay, it's just one person. But almost everybody that I read said they just don't know. You are talking about Jesus. You are talking about people who are walking with Jesus. We are talking about John who has given us this high introduction of Jesus as the Logos, the Word of God, who was in the beginning with God, who made all things by the Word of His power, who sustains all things, and you come to John 9 and then say, well, we don't really know how they knew that he was born blind. After having had John's introduction of who Jesus is, And you are talking about people who are walking with Jesus. And you don't know how someone was born blind? (laughs) They have had the testimony. If they've been reading the book of John, John 2, 24, 25, John says, But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew, oh man. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. With that testimony, it should not be hard to understand where John got the understanding that this man was born blind. Okay, It's Jesus. Jesus is walking with them. That's where you get the testimony. <laughs> Anyways, I just thought that I would share my frustration. When people reduce the knowledge of the person of Christ that way, So the man was born blind, and Jesus saw the man. Jesus saw the man as he saw the man with the infirmity for 38 years in John 5, verse 5 to 7. And this is what he says. A man was there, if you still remember, the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. And earlier in this chapter, just a few verses before, in John 5 verse 3, John has recorded for us and says, In these, by the pool of Bethesda, there were porches there. There were porches by the pool of Bethesda. So in these porches lay a great multitude of important folk, of blind, lame, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. 
So this is the kind of people who lay by the porches waiting for the water to be disturbed. But I want you to pay attention to the kind of people that John records for us as having been by the porches. They were important folk. They were blind, they were lame, and they were withered. And they were waiting for healing. In Matthew 15.30, Matthew records for us and says, Then great multitudes came to him, that is to Jesus, having with them, hear this again, the lame, the blind, the mute, the maimed, and many others of similar condition. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. What I want you to see is that the blind always, the blind almost always came in the company of the lame, the mute, the maimed, and the withered. They always came in the same company. And that is purposeful recording by the Holy Spirit. He wants us to understand something about this group of people. In Luke 14, verses 12 to 14. If you still remember, we talked about this some few months, maybe weeks back. Jesus is telling his disciples a story. He is talking about how they are to conduct themselves, how they are to treat people, and what kind of people. But he gives this teaching as a picture of the gospel, and he says, then he also said to him who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, when you have a feast, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When you give a feast, salvation is a feast. And the kind of people that Jesus invites to the feast that is in his salvation are the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. So this man in John 9 also belongs to those on Jesus' guest list. The kind that Jesus says are to be invited to the Great Supper. Why? Because they cannot repay. They can't repay. Salvation is designed in such a way that those who have been called have nothing to give for their own salvation. They have nothing to boast about themselves. They have no merit in themselves. That is the purpose of their not being able to repay. They have nothing. So none in that list has anything to boast about. They are poor, lame, blind, sick, withered. They have nothing to bring before the Lord. And what that is saying is, God will not and does not save any who spiritually are not in that condition. Well, men do not need a physician. Jesus' guest list 
is only for the unwell men, those with defects that lead to death. If nothing is done for any of these people, they are going to die. Those who do not feel their sickness cannot come to Jesus, period. But this is not saying you have to break your leg or cause yourself physical blindness so as to qualify yourself on Jesus' guest list. This is not about blindness. This is not about physical blindness. This is a description of the spiritual condition of all those who hear the message of grace. They see their condition and see nothing good in themselves, nothing good in their flesh, and so they only look to grace for salvation. But it is God himself who puts these people in this condition for his glory. It is God himself who puts this condition, who causes all these people to be in this condition for his glory. And it is he who sees them in that condition. It is he who comes to them because they are blind. They can't see or come to him. And so we are told, and Jesus saw him. Jesus saw him. Jesus did not see the Pharisees the way he saw this blind man. There's nowhere where he says, and Jesus saw the Pharisees. It is only in the context of these kinds of people that we hear the Holy Spirit saying, and Jesus saw him, saw him. If anyone is still claiming that they came to Jesus by their own will, by their own sight, then they may not be on Jesus' guest list. They are not telling the truth. Those who are on Jesus' guest list have no one to take them into the pool. They don't even know who Jesus is when he shows up. They are blind. They don't see. They can't see. Men are born blind from, from birth. And they can't see. And they can't come because they are lame. They can't walk. They are blind. They can't see. And will not recognize Jesus unless he comes to them. God does not save good people. There's no glory in saving good people. It is bad business if you are in the business of glory to save good people. It is bad business to sell waterproof jackets to fish. They won't appreciate that. Okay, Stan, you're going to start a business, be selling some goods to fish. But I'll tell you what fish will appreciate. They will appreciate some bow and arrows to shoot down some sharks. That's something that they can use, if they could. Here's my point. There's no appreciation of God's glory if people just showed up in heaven without redemption. There's no appreciation of who God is if people just showed up in heaven. If people were to show up in heaven outside the redemption that is in Christ, they would come and say to the angels, hush, be quiet. You're making noise. What is this holy, holy, holy song that you're singing? Why do we have to sing day and night? Who is this anyway? Who is holy? And what does it mean to be holy? 
God has to teach his creatures that he is holy. And sin is the background that God uses to teach us of his glory and holiness. Sin, therefore, did not happen by accident. It was given that man may distinguish between the holy and the unholy and between the unclean and the clean. And God used his law to teach us to that end. It came so that by it God would remove any merit whatsoever from man that he may teach us of himself, of his sufficiency and our insufficiency. Sin came that by it God would strip us naked of all merit so that the only merit that we have before him is that which he alone gives in his son. And it is when men are lame, blind, withered, that the righteousness of Christ alone is exalted. That the gospel becomes good news. And grace becomes amazing grace. The gospel is only good news when you are hearing it as a sinner. And no other way. <laughs> Otherwise, it is not good news. There's no good news for a new cancer treatment for someone who doesn't have cancer. Glasses are no good news for someone who already has 20-20 vision. But this is God's design of the gospel, my friends. Look at the qualification of those that he calls. This is in keeping with everything else that we have already learned about the blind, about the lame, about the withered. In 1 Corinthians 1, let's go there, 26 to 31, Apostle Paul works on that list again in a different way, but bringing the same theology. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31, he says, For consider your calling. Consider how you came to Christ. Think about it. Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, by his doing, not by your doing or my doing, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Now he's telling you, this is how you stand before God. If you are to stand before God in a way that removes any boasting, you are going to stand on Christ alone. And then in Christ, this is how you stand. You have Christ as your wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's the point. That is the point of sin. People who kick and scream and come up with all kinds of explanations 
This is the reason men are sinners. It's by God's doing that no one may boast. And if they have to come before him, they only show up chosen as weak things, as base things, as despised, so that they only stand on the righteousness of Christ alone. And no one makes themselves spiritually lame or blind. Because if you could do that, that would take glory away from God. If you could do that, if you could make yourself, remember these are spiritual things that we are talking about. And many people get taken away by the physical aspect of things and they miss the importance of what God is teaching. God says he works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things, not just some things. Not those things that we approve of, but all things according to the counsel of his will. It is God who does all these things. If a man be blind, it's God's doing. If a man be lame, physically or spiritually, it's God's doing. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. And we are going to find out later Jesus saying, oh, by the way, no, it's not his parents, it's not him, but it's God who is working all things for his glory. And so Jesus, when he showed up, he saw the blind man, not because Jesus had sight. Yes, of course, Jesus had sight. But he saw the blind man as one of those that belonged to his guest list. The kind that he invites to his great supper. He saw him with a seeing of recognition as one of his own. He saw him with his sovereign electing eyes. Jesus knew about the man. He knew everything about the man that this one was born blind. Born blind from his mother's belly. This man is elect, but he has a serious issue. He was born blind from birth. And that is not a physical condition, as I said, but a spiritual description of all men. Remember, John is preaching the gospel. All men are born spiritually blind from birth. John the Baptist had the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, but he needed to be regenerated. He needed to be born again, even in his mother's womb. Only Jesus was born spiritually alive. Jesus alone was born spiritually alive. So the blindness of the man and the condition of his life was God's picture of the spiritual condition of all those who are born in this wilderness, in the darkness of this wilderness that we call the world. And remember, when John is using the term world, he has an ethical and spiritual component to his understanding of what that means. He is not talking of just this world as the physical space, but he is talking about it as an ethically corrupt and morally compromised place. So all men are born blind because of the fall in Adam. Born dead in trespasses and sins. And they are blind also because of the devil. The devil is God's instrument of blinding people. Of hardening sinners. 
In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, Apostle Paul says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine on them. So God uses the devil to keep some people away from believing the gospel. Ephesians 2 verse 1, 3 says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So God uses the devil as an instrument of hardening and blinding people to believe in the gospel. But people are also blind because God himself blinds them. John 12 verse 40. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. So God keeps men hardened by his power that they may not hear the gospel because he doesn't want to save them. That's sovereignty. That's sovereignty. And people will kick and scream and throw tantrums and say, no, but you can't do that. But let us keep hearing. So the disciples want to test their theology on what could have caused the blindness of the man. People have to have an explanation as to why certain things are happening or happened to someone. Things cannot just happen, you know. That's the theology of the flesh. And it is true in many ways, but this is where it goes wrong. Things cannot just happen to someone unless they did something. The theology becomes wrong when we say if something bad happens to someone, it has to be because of something that they did. Her husband or wife could not have left her or him if she was not lazy. <laughs> We are always seeking cause and effect, even where there's none. And people do that not to really understand the situation, not to try and help the situation, but so that they can find ways to prevent things from happening to them or to keep the rumor mill going. They think things are preventable, that calamity is preventable, that a bad run in life is avoidable with better planning. Listen to me, someone. There is no human plan that is immune to God's hands. Because it is God who causes all things. The disciples, being fleshly, concord a theology on the life circumstances of the man and say in verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? They will not allow for anything to have caused the blindness that is not the man or his parents. They zero in on the man or his parents. 
Who sent this man or his parents that he should be blind? If it is not the man, then it has to be his parents. But the question is, what sin did the man commit when he was in his mother's womb that caused God to smite him with blindness? Or did he burp in his mother's belly and God said, that's it. (laughs) You haven't honored your mother. So here is blindness to teach you to honor your parents. (laughs) If it is not the son, then it has to be the parents. If it is the parents, then it has to be some sin in them or some generational case. There has to be some generational case. And the disciples are probably thinking, Exodus 20, verse 5. Exodus 20, verse 5 says, You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. They are thinking generational curses. And this generational curse theology is very popular with modern-day prosperity and fake prophets and preachers. They say whatever difficult situation that you are having is because of some sin, is because of some sins that you or your forefathers committed, and so you need a deliverance. So we have to have a deliverance ceremony. You need to take back your territory and command the spirits. You need to decree and to declare. You need to bind the spirits. Just binding. Binding them with cords. But that's false theology. Listen to this. There is no case for one who is in Christ Jesus. Only one who is still under the law is cursed. For the one who is in Christ... Redeemed in Christ, the Bible says, Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The believer in Christ is not under any curse and cannot be cursed because there's no basis for cursing them. Christ has removed all grounds For them to be cursed. They are blessed in Christ. Christ has already been cursed on their behalf. The devil has no power to curse anyone. Your parents, your enemies have no power to curse anyone unless God is the one behind the curse. There's no curse that has power if God does not empower it. In Numbers 22, Balak, the king of Moab, was exceedingly afraid of Israel. And so he wanted Balaam. He called upon Balaam the prophet to come and cast them for him. To cast a spell on them that they may be destroyed. Numbers 23. Numbers 23, 6 to 8 says, And so he returned to him. It's a long section, so we're just going to pull out what we need. So he returned to him, and there he was standing by his burnt offering. That's Balaam who came back to Balak. And Balak had made an offering. An offering that Balaam may curse Israel for him. So 
he returned to him, and there he was, standing by his burnt offering, he and all the princes of Moab. And he took up his oracle and said, that's Balaam taking up his oracle, Balak, the king of Moab, has brought me from Aram, from the mountains of the east. Come cast Jacob for me, and come denounce Israel. And this is what Balaam says. How shall I cast whom God has not cursed? And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? That's a rhetorical question. It cannot be done, Balaam. It cannot be done, Balak. Numbers 23, verses 17 to 23. So he, Balaam, came to him, that is Balak, and there he was standing by his burnt offering and the princes of Moab were with him. And Balak said to him, what has the Lord spoken? Then he took up his oracle and said, rise up Balak in here. Listen to me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. As he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot reverse it, Balak. God has given a command to bless his people in Christ, and it cannot be reversed. He is not a man that he should repent or change his mind. Verse 21, he has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord, his God, is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox, for there is no sorcery against Jacob, nor any divination against Israel. It now must be said of Jacob and of Israel, or what God has done. Why was Israel not cursed? Because God is not a man who changes his mind. But there's more. Election. Because of election. God said, there's no iniquity in Jacob that I should curse them. But how could God say that? Jacob is the name of Israel. Jacob were a sinful people. Jacob is the hill catcher. Jacob is the supplanter. Jacob is a sinner. There has to be sin to be found in him. But God says, I have not found any iniquity in Jacob. Why? Because Jacob is elect. God said, I have not observed iniquity in Jacob, and that is all that matters. If God says, I have not observed iniquity in you on account of Christ because you are elect in Christ, that's all that matters. So that is God's testimony of all his people. They cannot be cursed anymore because he has not found any iniquity in them because of election and because of Christ. So our gospel says, I have not observed iniquity in those who are in Christ. There is no sorcery in them. They are clean by the words that I have spoken, said the Lord in John 15.3. So generational cases, some more remarks on generational cases. Generational case theology flourishes because of wrong eschatology, fully realized eschatology. 
And what that means is these people say all the promises of God in Christ are ours to name and claim right now if anyone has enough faith. Yes, they are ours to claim, but they are heavenly promises and they are spiritual, not earthly blessings in that regard. In Ephesians 1.3, Apostle Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So the spiritual blessings are in the heavenly places and their spiritual blessings. So the word of faith ministries are built on a fully realized earthly eschatology that says God is ready and willing to drop the manna, the garlic and the cucumbers from Egypt, the good health and the house and the Bentley, if only you could master enough faith. And if you don't have it, it's because you are not exercising your faith. And of course, this always works for the so-called man of God or the prophet because he is getting all his loot from the tithes and offerings. God's blessing only gets to his house, but never to anybody. Everyone else has to wait for theirs to come. (laughs) So now the honors to get stuff is put on you and your faith and not on God. You become the sovereign one by your faith and God becomes your servant to that end. And that is false theology. That is false theology. So in this story, we have seen the gospel, the condition of man as blind from birth. We have seen bad theology of trying to connect the cause of the blindness to some sin that the parents or the man did, which Jesus was not denying that the man was a sinner. He was denying the cause. He was denying the cause. But as Jesus gives understanding by his explanation, He gives us very important theology on God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And that's going to be our last discussion of our teaching. In this story, there's given us a very important understanding of God's sovereignty. Things are going to happen to our children, to your children. And some will say it is because they're homeschooled. Or some will say it's because they're public schooled. Or some will say because they have a single parent. Or some will say they will give some explanation. Whatever explanation that has been offered may have some bearing. It may affect certain things, but half the story has never been told. Be careful with trying to interpret divine providence. That's what Jesus was saying. Be careful to interpret God's providence. Who has known the mind of the Lord that they should instruct him? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And that's Jesus' theology. The disciples are pressing human responsibility as the cause of the blindness. But Jesus presses sovereignty. The disciples push human responsibility to the point of irrationality. It is the man 
who must have sinned in his mother's belly. That's how far they are willing to take human responsibility. And there are a lot of irrational arguments given by men who want to explain away the truth and reality of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is about God being God all by himself, being the first cause of all things in all things. It is God doing only what God does by himself. God does not work contingent upon what man does. What that means is God does not respond to man. He is always the first mover. He works necessarily out of his own good pleasure, his sovereign will and purpose. There are some who insist that God's sovereignty does not exist and can't exist without human responsibility to balance it. And Jesus comes and he wipes that argument clean. They reason as these disciples. But Jesus says, you are wrong. Human responsibility is not working side by side here, folks. It's not working side by side with God's sovereignty. Human responsibility is not the cause of things. It is a secondary cause of some things. God's sovereignty is the cause of all things. Human responsibility is only a cause of some things that God first caused. (laughs) But all things are of God, even the good, the bad, and the ugly. They are from him and to him, that is to his glory. Exodus 4, verse 11. So the Lord said to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? He takes responsibility. And this is Jesus' theology. God has just claimed here that it is he who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind. And Apostle Paul would say, who makes you to differ anyway? Isn't it God who makes you to differ? That should be sinful for God to claim because these are people's kids. These are some people's kids that he is claiming to cause to be deaf and to be blind. It should be sinful for God to come and say, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. It should be sinful for God to cause trouble to Job. This Job, this man whom God described in Job 1 verse 8 and said, there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. This Job who never sinned in his self-defense saying, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this. This job that God comes and vindicates. This, this job that God comes and vindicates and says, Job is righteous. He spoke that which is right about me, unlike his friends. It is the same job that the scriptures say in Job 42 verse 11. Then 
came there unto him, all his brethren and all his sisters and all that had been of his acquaintance before and did eat bread with him in his house. And they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Not the devil. Remember, the writer of Job knows that is the devil who was sent to cause trouble. And yet he says, these were gathered at Job's house to comfort him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money and everyone an earring of gold. So whether you want to play gymnastics and say evil is not evil, it just means calamity or adversity, it does not lighten the suffering of Job in the hands of the devil. It does not lighten the blindness of the man born blind and the suffering that happened to all these people who were born deaf and mute, born withered. If you lose all your money, you lose your health, you lose all your children, you lose everything, and your wife is telling you to curse God and die, I don't think you're going to go about saying, oh, this calamity, we already scream evil and murder if we find no money at the ATM (laughs) or even ban our own cooking. It is God's sovereignty alone that determines things to be as you see them. Jesus argued for first cause and the reason for it. He gave the reason for it. Glory in the revelation of the works of God. This is what Jesus said in John 9, 3. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. So he completely removes man from this equation. But that the works of God should be revealed in him. So right there, you are given the person who did it and why they did it. Neither this man nor his parents completely removes man's determination in the cause of their dire circumstances or situations. And it is the same Jesus who said in Matthew 20, 15, Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things, or is your eye evil because I am good? Jesus is defending God's sovereignty. He is defending his own sovereignty and saying, Is it not lawful for him to do what he wishes? Doesn't that sound like Romans 9 theology? He is arguing for the right of the porter over the clay. That's what Jesus is saying. People do not know, theologians included, churchmen, some believers, do not know that God is truly sovereign, which means he does whatever he wants and whatever he wishes with his own things. And all things are his. All things belong to him to dispose as he wishes for his good pleasure, for his glory. Jesus said, it was God's good pleasure that the man was born blind. Jesus did not say, no, it was because he had no vaccination, he had malaria, he had some bacterial infection of the eyes, or the parents did not file for their taxes. No, he said God did it. It means it pleased God to make the man blind. It was not a generational curse 
or a sin that he committed, but God who directly caused his blindness. I'm sure many people will say, that is evil. God did not actually do that. You can't say God did that. You cannot charge God with doing something like that. You make him the author of evil. You have to find, you can't say that, James, you can't say that. You have to find something that the parents did or the grandparents did or what he did. Even if it means he kicked his parents, he kicked his mom, he kicked the mom, kicked the ribs of the mom in the belly. (laughs) Here's the problem. That is not the God of Jesus Christ. That is not the God of the Bible. And that is not the God of Apostle Paul. For the God of Apostle Paul says, Romans 9. We're going to be in Romans 9. I think the Lord wants us to really understand Romans 9. But I, I'm going to be talking about it. It's just, just keeps coming back. But Romans 9, a lot of people don't hear about it. A lot of churches don't even want to go there. But it's unavoidable to preach the true gospel, sovereign grace gospel, and not God Romans 9. It's just one book that is unavoidable. Romans 9 14 to 24, we are going to be reading each verse and making commentary on each verse all the way to the end. What shall we say then about this man being born blind? Is there any unrighteousness with God? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is there unrighteousness with God to make a man blind from birth for no good reason other than his glory? A lot of people would say, that's unrighteous. Jesus said, neither the man nor the parents sinned. So it has to be unrighteous for God to cause a calamity on someone for something that he didn't do wrong. It has to be wrong. If we are judging God by the standards of man, then that can't be righteous. But Apostle Paul says, God forbid. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God will have mercy on whom he wills. And that means his mercy is dependent not on the person, but on himself, his glory, his good pleasure. Whether blind or lame or not, it is up to He's doing. So he made the blind that he will show mercy on him. That is to demonstrate the works of God. That is consistent theology. Verse 16. So then it is not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, but of God that shows mercy. So in salvation, as in all things pertaining to Your existence, it is not about your running or effort that makes a difference, but God who shows mercy. It is God's will that purposes all things, empowers all things, and causes all things to stand. If it happens, it happens because God willed it, and he empowered it for his glory. Verse 17, for the scripture says, Unto Pharaoh, even for this purpose have I raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be declared throughout the earth. Isn't that glory language? 
that his name may be declared throughout the earth. This man was born blind that the works of God may be revealed in him. It sounds like God is talking about himself. It sounds like God is all about himself. (laughs) He's so much about himself that he's willing to cause a man to be blind all his life that God may be glorified. Pharaoh was raised up by God as a sweet little chubby boy (laughs) for the purpose of being destroyed by God himself for his glory. That's what God has just claimed. God wanted to show his power in the destruction of a whole nation, and he did it. Verse 18, therefore, he has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he wills, he hardens. So the conclusion is, God messes whoever he wants and hardens whomever he wants. He does not give the decision to mercy or harden to the creature, but to himself. He is the actor and the first cause in mercy and in hardening and in all things. Verse 19, you say then unto me, why does he yet find fault? For who has resisted his will? That is the obvious response by anyone who understands God's sovereignty in its true light as God is revealing it. They see that God is claiming responsibility for determining the state and condition of every man served or unserved. God is claiming responsibility to do that. They see that man has no power to determine anything but God himself. And that leaves man at the mercy of God's will and purpose and power. And his purpose cannot be thwarted. He will accomplish all his good pleasure. Verse 20. Now to the question, why does he yet find fault? Who are you, O men, that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, What have you done? Why have you made me this way? God's response is, Who are you to reply against me? That's the question. It's a question of authority. We we are not really discussing all these other things. I'm just questioning your legal right to raise your question. Who gave you the platform to come and question me? That's where the issue is. God does not answer the question and does not deny the charge of being unfair. (laughs) He goes straight to attack the right of the creature to question him. He says, there are no voting rights with me. There are no voting rights and there are no ballot boxes either. Creatures have no right to question God, period. So all this thing of saying, God is the author of this, is not this of that, is people are already going beyond what they're supposed to go into. If something exists It exists by God's power, will, and purpose for his glory. We are not invited to make a moral evaluation of why God caused this to happen and why this happened this way. That's not our business. God says, who are you? You can't question my ways. I am doing all these things for my glory. And the job he said, who is this who darkens counsel with words without knowledge? (laughs) 
So God says, verse 21 again, He has not the potter power over the clay of the same lamp to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. God argues for his absolute right. Verse 21, had not the potter power over the clay of the same lamp to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. God argues for his absolute right as the potter. And he argues for his freedom to fashion and dispose things as he alone sees fit. The clay does not participate in the decision-making by the potter. It is silently shaped into whatever the potter wants it to be, into whatever vessel the potter wants it to be. And that is sovereignty. The clay is not made into a vessel of honor or dishonor by its decision of human responsibility. That teaching takes away human self-determination. It is God who makes the decision of which vessel is going to be a vessel of honor and which vessel is going to be the vessel of dishonor. The vessel is passive in this decision. The vessel only finds out later that it is a vessel of mercy. If it hears the gospel, it's going to find out later that it is a vessel of dishonor when they wake up in hell. Everything moves by the power and hand of the potter. And as I quoted earlier, Apostle Paul, who said, who makes you to differ? Who makes you to differ? Is it not the hand of the potter over the clay that makes the clay to differ? Is it not the hand of the potter over the clay that makes the clay to differ? Is it not the decision of the potter to determine where to put the different vessels of honor? Verse 22, what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he has before prepared to glory, even us whom he has called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So God has fashioned some vessels of mercy by his grace, and others he has prepared for destruction. And God does not have problems. He has no qualms declaring what it is that he does. It is man who are uncomfortable with this God who declares what he does. And so they will come and concoct some silly theology and say it has to be his parents or him who sinned in his mother's womb for things to have come out the way they are. But Jesus says, no, this is what you don't understand. It is all glory business. It is all glory business. It was that God may be glorified in the healing of this man. And if Jesus was glorified in the healing of the blind man, he was even glorified in our salvation. And so you and I were born blind, that is dead in trespasses and sins by God's will 
and purpose that Christ may be glorified in our salvation. This is where we are going. If God caused the man to be blind for Christ's glory, then we are what we are for the glory of God. In Romans 11.32, Apostle Paul says, God has committed them all to disobedience. God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. It is God and not man and not the devil who committed man to disobedience. God is the one who committed man to disobedience. Why? That he may show mercy. That he may display mercy. That he may have mercy on all, but not all, but all of those who are elect in Christ. Galatians 3.22 The scripture is confined or under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Hear this again. But the scripture is confined or under sin. That's all men. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. What is that saying? It is saying it is God who has confined all men under sin. God has to display his glory. Forget the God who is desperate to be chosen and be invited. (laughs) This is what this is saying. In the bigger scope of theology, God decreed and empowered sin that he may, by sin, confine all men and creation under sin. That the promise of life may only be given in Christ to his glory. Sin had to happen that life could only be given through Christ Jesus to those who believe, not in the first Adam. You see where it goes? God has subjected his creation through the decree of the fall to sin so that his son and his gospel may be glorified. Romans 8, 17 to 21. And we are, we'll be done in the next three minutes, I think. Romans 8, 17 to 21 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity. The creation, the creature, everything is included, was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. This is what he's saying. God purposed sin and subjected all creation to vanity, to depravity, to futility. And the creation, we are told, did not do this willingly. It says this was done to the creature, not willingly, but unwillingly by God's purpose and power. It was by reason of him who subjected creation to vanity. Who is that who subjects creation to vanity? Who has the power to do that? It is God. But for what reason? In hope that Christ would redeem them 
from that vanity and hopelessness and cause them to hope in the redemption that is in Christ. That they would have an earnest expectation of their redemption in Christ. So you see, the redemption of all creation is predicated on the redemption of all those who are in Christ. So who seen this man or his parents that he should be born blind? It was neither this man or his parents who sinned. This was not denying that they were sinners. This was denying their theology. Jesus says, things are this way for God's glory in salvation. Remember, this is a salvation story. So why were you a rebel before you came to Christ? It is not that your parents were bad parents. It was so that the Lord would be glorified in bringing you to Christ. Unless we have the glory of God in Christ, in all things, as the center of our theology, our understanding will be man-centered, messed up and useless, and say, (laughs) it's him who kicked his mother's belly. What do the scriptures say of him and through him and to him are all things? And to him be the glory forever. Amen. And if that is our understanding of this theology of salvation, we will never be moved. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your glory in Christ Jesus, in the work of our salvation, us who were born blind, born lame, mute, deaf, withered. Lord, we are thankful that you have brought us to this point in our lives, that we recognize our spiritual infirmities, that we may see the glory of the gospel of Christ, the glory of his righteousness, the glory of the gospel of free and sovereign grace. Because the design of the gospel is such that God may display his grace, his mercy, towards his people. And as we learned from Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, for us to consider our calling, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the weak things, the base things, the despised things of the world, that no one may come and boast before you, that if they have to boast, they only have to boast in Christ Jesus who has become to us the wisdom from God, righteousness, redemption, and sanctification. Lord, we thank you for your sovereignty in all things. We thank you for your glory. And we, of all people, have an imperishable hope because we know that your glory will not fail. Your purpose to glorify your son will not fail. And if you are glorifying your son through the redemption of his people, your people, then we also have a sure hope that we will be able to come and behold the glory of Christ that he had with you before the foundation of the world. Lord, I pray for all those who shall hear this message. May you open their ears and bless them with understanding. We pray and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.